If you have your Bible this morning, I invite you to turn to the book of Ruth. For God's people, even in the midst of the blackest night, there is always a glimpse of the brightest dawn. For God's people, even in the midst of the blackest night, there is always a glimpse of the brightest dawn. That is what we are going to see this morning through the book of Ruth. Ruth takes place during the time of the judges. As we saw last week, and what you may know from your own study, judges was an awful time for Israel. It was, in many ways, a black night for them spiritually. Most of the country was caught up in idolatry, and sin was rampant. We are told that instead of following God and His law, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And yet in the midst of that spiritual darkness and depravity comes a story of grace and hope and love that we find in the book of Ruth. Here is a story that begins like much, much of the rest of Judges, yet ends with hope born out of God's gracious hand on the life of His people. Today, some of you may be here and you may feel like you are in the darkest place in the world. Others of you may have recently come out of a very dark place and the rest of us only have that to look forward to because of the sinfulness of this world. Ultimately, no one is able to escape the deep pain that the sin of this world brings to our lives. It is the reality as we live between the cross of Christ and the consummation of the ages. Nevertheless, Ruth is going to be to us, I hope, a reminder of the reality that even when things look bleak, God is still at work for the good of His people. Even when we cannot see the end God is working to, be, to bring about, we can be confident that God is at work. And that confidence should produce within us a deep, sustaining faith even during the dark times. Well, if you're at the book of Ruth, flip to the last chapter, chapter 4, the very last verses. Ruth is such a small book. In fact, if you're flipping fast, you'll miss it at the end of the Judges between, uh, between Judges and 1 Samuel. And, and frankly, I was trying to figure out some way to actually just read the story today. Uh, but then I realized that uh, there would not be much time left for comment. And though that would be an interesting uh, project at some point, maybe else to do to have the different people reading the different voices. This morning what I want us to do is see the end of the story and from seeing where the story goes, go back and walk through and see where it got there and the lessons that it can teach us as we seek to have hope in God. So our scripture reading for this morning is Ruth chapter 4 verses 13 through the end of the book. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may His name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Abinadab. 
Abinadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. May God bless the reading of His Word. Unless you're familiar with or you've read the story of Ruth before, we very much feel the weight of what has come on previous to this uh, uh, in the story. We don't know exactly how we've got here, but what we do see is the joy and the happiness and even the history and the making with which the story ends. But the question that, that is on our minds is how did we get here? Uh, who is this Boaz character? Who is Ruth? Why are these women so happy for this woman named Naomi? In fact, given the title of the book, Ruth, uh, and given the fact that it opens with talking about Boaz and Ruth getting married and having a son, we may be deceived into thinking the book is about Ruth. But then these women very quickly show us otherwise. For the rest of this passage, the next few verses are all about what the Lord has done for Naomi. And so we're quickly corrected and understand that this book called Ruth is really about Naomi. It is about Naomi going from a woman who is bitter and lacks faith in God and sees life as having no hope and goes to know how we see here at the end of the book, filled with joy and life and hope and the living God. So how did she get here? Well, we're going to see a couple of things this morning that led her here. And in all of these things, what we want to see is the hand of the Lord working quietly in the background, patiently seeking to bring hope to those without hope. The first thing that we see is the sin that led to bitterness. The sin that led to bitterness. In chapter 1, the book begins by telling us, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Now, the story is set up by telling us this Israelite man from Bethlehem named Elimelech who attempts to flee the famine that is going on in his land by leaving the country of Israel and going into the country of Moab. And if you've been following along, maybe reading more in the Bibles, we've been going on the story, you know Moab is not a great place. It had its very origins in an ancestral relationship, and Moab as a people have always been Israel's enemies. And at first glance, if you know that, you see Elimelech going to Moab, and you're thinking, Elimelech, what in the world are you doing? How can a good Jewish man be going off to live in Moab? Well, he's doing two things that we need to understand. First, by fleeing the famine, Elimelech was trying to flee God's judgment. By seeking to flee the famine, Elimelech was really trying to flee God's judgment. You see, the famine in Bethlehem is not just an unfortunate series of events. It's not just accidental that there's a famine going on during this time, but rather the very hand of God that has been cast out over the whole land in judgment. You say, how do you know that? Where is that in the text? Well, it's not in this text, but if we would skip back to Leviticus 26 that we saw earlier, you will remember that God made certain promises both to bless and to curse, depending on the faithfulness of the people. In Leviticus 26, verses 14 to 20, the Lord God says to Israel, If you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consumes the eyes and makes the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain. And your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. 
What does God say? God says, insofar as you flee from me, you don't acknowledge me as Lord, you go after other gods, you don't keep my commandments, then I will seek to get your attention. I will seek to discipline you by bringing famine upon the land. That's exactly what's been going on here as the book of Ruth opens. But more than just fleeing God's judgment, Elimelech is also leaving God. Elimelech is also leaving God. He's forsaking the covenant that God made with Israel in the hopes of being blessed by pagan gods. He forsakes the pursuit of living as one of God's people and falls in line with a godless culture around him in Moab. And more than just him and his life, Elimelech's sin affects his family as well. Soon after they arrive, it seems, Elimelech dies. And you would think that, that his wife and his sons would say, well, let's go, let's go back to Israel. That's what you would hope them to do, to say, this is where we belong. We're Israelites. Let's go back to the land. But they don't. They stay, in fact, for 10 more years in Moab. And more than that, his sons have become so enculturated with the pagan society around them, they themselves transgress the law and marry Moabite women. But then in verse 5, we see they lived there about 10 years, and both the sons, Malon and Chilion, died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Naomi's left. She is the only one that is left. And in literally uh, half a verse, Naomi's world has come crashing down around her. Consider the situation she's in. She's a strange in a strange land. She has two daughters-in-law to care for, yet she has no source of income, no man to look after her to provide for her. How is she going to live? How is she going to survive? And it's this situation that results in a deep bitterness in the soul of Naomi. She says when, in fact, in a little while when she, go, when she herself goes back to Israel, she'll see her friends and say, look, it's a Naomi. And she says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Merah, the Hebrew word for bitter. She says, because I am bitter at the Lord for this thing that he has done to me. She clearly recognizes God's sovereign hand at work, but she fails to have the right response Instead of humbling herself and repenting of her sin, she lets a pervasive root of bitterness grow up inside of her. A couple years ago when I first preached through the book of Ruth, I came across an article about something I never heard of before. It was called the Judas Goat. And of course that in and of itself made me say, oh, I wonder what that thing's about. Judas Goat, that sounds interesting. And I found out that this Judas Goat is the name given to a certain goat that is used in the slaughterhouse business. You see, sheep, as you know, are very fearful, but they're also willing to be led. And they will take and train this goat called the Judas goat very specifically to, when it sees it, walk up the ramp that leads to the slaughterhouse. And so what they will do then is uh, train this thing and they will send it in, am in amongst the sheep that they want to slaughter. And this Judas goat will kind of look around for a few minutes. It'll see the ramp and it'll begin to go right up the ramp. And of course, it only takes two or three sheep to see this goat. And then they, be they begin to follow along. And then all the other sheep pick up the herd mentality and they just follow on along to the slaughter. All the better for us for food and clothing, right? But not so good for them. And I fear that very often we have this same kind of herd mentality. Instead of trusting in God and His promises, we look out to the culture around us. And much like following the Judas goat to our own destruction, we don't remain faithful to God. We don't trust in His promises. And we seek to live life like everyone else around us. And the result of that sinfulness is never good. Pursuing sin never ends well. It always ends in misery. 
whether it's physical or spiritual death like Elimelech suffered or the temptation to be overcome with bitterness like Naomi. Sin's consequences are never pretty and we can't ever escape them on our own. Therefore, the best decision as God's people is to avoid the sin altogether. It's to see the example of Elimelech, to see his sinfulness of turning away from God, of not seeking to repent and humble himself, and to take his family and to go into a pagan and idolatrous culture, hoping to find relief there and say, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. What works, what will always work, what will always keep us safe and secure is pursuing God and trusting in Him. And if sin has revealed itself in our life, then not fleeing from God's judgment, but staring at the face in the cross of Christ and humbling ourselves and repenting of it. By the end of chapter 1, things look bleak for Naomi. And as we move into chapter 2, however, rays of hope begin to shine upon the story as we see, secondly, the love that led to grace. We saw the sin that led to bitterness, and now, secondly, we want to see the love that led to grace. In verse 14 of chapter 4, the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to a son. The reality is, as we read through this book, Ruth loved Naomi. We don't know why that was the case. We don't know why Ruth loved her as much as she did. Nevertheless, right after her sons die. Naomi tries to send these two daughters-in-law away. She says, look, there's nothing for me here. I'm going back to Egypt, but it's better if you stay here. Your families are here. Your gods are here. This is where you grew up. She says, look at me. What do I have to offer you? She says, I'm an old lady. She says, I have no more sons for you to marry. Even if I got married again. She says, what are you going to do? Wait for 18 years to marry again? She says, no, just stay here and go on. And, and one, of the, one of the daughters-in-law, Orpha, she does leave. She does. She, she kisses Naomi and she goes her own way. But we are told that Ruth clung to Naomi. She wouldn't let her go. And Naomi says, look, just, just go, Ruth. There's nothing for you here. And yet Ruth responds with one of the most moving speeches in all the Bible. She says to Naomi, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. And may the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. You understand what, what Ruth is doing here? She is committing herself totally to loving, to taking care of Naomi as she goes back to Israel. She is laying everything down in her life to serve Naomi. She's leaving her family and her friends in Moab. As far as she knows, she's leaving behind a life of potential motherhood and wifedom. She's, she's saying, I, I'm willing to go and to be, as it were, an old maid, never having married or having kids. A thing in that culture was considered a despicable curse, all to take care of you, Naomi. She was moving to a foreign land with unfamiliar people and unknown customs and perhaps even an unknown language. All of that because she loved Naomi. And it's that commitment of love from Ruth that God ultimately uses to bless Naomi. It is that gracious, undeserved love of Ruth that God uses to show His gracious love for Naomi. Both women return to Bethlehem and they cause quite a stir. Everyone is surprised to see them back. And again, that's where, that's where they all say, hey, look, there's Naomi. And she says, don't, don't call me that. 
don't call me that because, because I am too bitter. And Naomi, as it were, you get this impression, she just kind of throws herself down in the dirt and, and disgust about the whole thing. But Ruth is a little more practical. She says, you know, we've got to have something to eat here. And so she says to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. Ruth knows enough of the Israelite land and perhaps it was the same culture in Moab, but those that were poor and impoverished, they were able to go along the edges, as it were, of uh, the harvest fields. And as the people are, are shucking the grain and they're harvesting up the things that, they, that fell behind them and they dropped, the poor were able to pick those things up and to keep them and to go home and to, to use that to cook food for themselves. It would not have been enough to feast on, but it would also have allowed them not to starve. You can imagine if you needed all of your meals based on the money you got walking around Bay City collecting pop cans or pop bottles. You're certainly uh, not going to Olive Garden every night. Nevertheless, you may be able to get a dollar burger and a Coke from McDonald's. You could live off of it. And that's exactly what Ruth is going to do. But what Ruth doesn't know and what Naomi doesn't know, the author of this book lets us in on, and that is part of God's providential plan. In chapter 2, verse 1, we read, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Here he's setting us up for the provision, the blessing, the grace that God is going to show Naomi. Ruth finds herself by chance in Boaz's very field to be gleaning for food. And the author is essentially saying here kind of, you know, surprise, Ruth is going into Bethlehem to glean for food. And, and, and Boaz, this relative of Naomi, just happens to have a field in Bethlehem. And Ruth just happens to go to the very field that the relative of Naomi owns. The same place at the same time. Literally, the original says, as chance chanced upon it, she came to Boaz Field. It's almost as if he's doing the old wink, wink, nudge, nudge. You know, just so happened Boaz is there. Just so happened he's related. Just so happened he's got a field. It just so happened that Ruth went to that very field. What a coincidence! But the author of Ruth doesn't believe in coincidence. The author of Ruth believes in providence. And he wants us to see that there is no chain of coincidences that brought these two people together. It was God's sovereign hand guiding their lives. Boaz comes to the very field and sees Ruth and takes notice of her. And he tells her, don't go to the other fields where you might be hurt. Stay here and glean in my field only. I will t I've told the other men to leave you alone and you will be safe. Furthermore, I've also told them that you can go and you can drink from the water pots that have been set aside for my workers. Ruth is like, who are you again? Why, why are you showing this kind of kindness to me? I am, a, I am a foreigner. I am a poor woman. Why are you doing this? And Boaz says, because I have heard of your love for Naomi. I have heard all that you have done for her in coming to her, though she has no son, though her, her son has died and you have no husband. I have heard of your commitment to her and to the Lord God. And therefore, he says in verse 12 of chapter 2, may the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. 
It is Ruth's loving commitment to Naomi that causes Boaz to heap upon her grace upon grace upon grace, giving her more than the law provided for. The law said you had to let the poor glean in your fields, but Boaz does more. At the end of the day, he says, come and sit at my table and eat my food. And then he sends her home with 30 pounds of barley. That's two weeks worth of food for her and Naomi. He just, he's going above and above and above. And standing behind this grace from Boaz is the grace of God himself towards Naomi. Naomi's bitterness was an attitude of sin. It was sinful. It was not right for her to have that kind of attitude. And we can see here where God could have been justified in judging her and condemning her and allowing her to die starving in Israel because of that sin. But in this case, God was not satisfied to do that. He looked at her and he felt pity upon her and he loved her as one of his covenant people. And even when she wasn't looking for grace, God showed it to her anyway. And it was that unrelenting grace that quickly brought about a redemption that led to joy. This is the third thing that we see in the book of Ruth, the redemption that led to joy. Again, our women's chorus say to Naomi at the end of the book, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may His name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. Naomi has gone from being bitter to now hopeful at this point in the story. I mean, you can imagine. Here is, here is disgusted Naomi. Bitter not caring, just sitting back, looking at life go by and just thinking, how terrible is my life? And then off in the distance, she sees someone coming and she says, who is that? Who is that coming? Is that, is that Ruth? Boy, what has she got on her back? What, what is that thing? And Ruth comes up dirty. And so you can imagine carrying 30 pounds on your shoulder for a couple miles. Here she comes. We're working out in the fields today. She's dirty. She's sweating. She comes up to Naomi and goes, boom, and drops that thing down. How would you like some barley, Naomi? And Naomi says, where, where did you get all that? You couldn't have gleaned all that. Where did you get all that? And she says, this worker just brought me in, and, she, and he gave me all this stuff. He says, eat at my table. And he sent us off. And she's like, oh, my goodness. And she begins, she begins to get happy. And she says, well, let's, let's cook this up, and let's, let's, let's make some barley cakes. And as they're cooking, she goes, so who was this guy? And Ruth says, I don't know. It's some guy named Boaz. And Naomi stops. Who's Boaz? Boaz is from Bethlehem. He's related to Elimelech. This, this might actually be God trying to help us. This might actually be God's hand at work. This, this might actually be the hope that I have been looking for. And that's exactly what it was. Naomi begins to give Ruth instructions about how to pursue Boaz and ask him to be the Redeemer for her and for Ruth. It is to be a provider for them. And although, frankly, Naomi's instructions to Ruth are a bit ambivalent. We don't know if, if it's Naomi's uh, latent Moabite thinking, but she says, look, go get, go get washed up. Make yourself, you're dirty from working, okay? Go get washed up, get clean, put on your best clothes, put on some perfume, and then tonight, while all the men are sleeping on the threshing floor, 
protecting all of what they have gathered from the animals and from thieves, then you go in, you sneak in, and he'll and, and you lay down next to him, and he'll tell you what to do. Now, Naomi, what in the world do you have? What Naomi, what, what, what is your end game here? What do you think is going to happen? Well, Ruth pretty much follows exactly what she says to do. However, when Boaz wakes up, Ruth makes it clear what she is wanting. She strays from Naomi's advice and she says to Boaz, spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. What does she mean, spread your wings over? She's saying, marry me. Marry me. You are a redeemer. You are, you are one of Naomi's kinsmen through Elimelech. Demonstrate faithfulness to your family and marry me. Ruth isn't looking for a one-night stand that may guilt Boaz into something. She's looking for the long-term commitment of marriage. They have to understand this is just um, incredibly unusual in every sense of the word. Here is a foreigner, a woman proposing marriage to Boaz after waking him up by laying down to him in the middle of the night in a threshing floor full of dirty old men who've been working all day. It's bizarre. It's bizarre. Nevertheless, what does Boaz do? He says, go back to sleep. And the morning you get up before anybody sees that you're here and they think ill of you, and I will be your redeemer. I will honor your request. Now, some of you are saying, now, 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 now Pastor, explain again, what is this redeemer thing? What is, what is this kinsman redeemer thing all about? Well, in a technical sense, it's a position prescribed by the Old Testament whereby men are to fulfill four obligations when necessary. The Redeemer was to avenge the death of a family member, hunting down and killing the murderer, Numbers 35. The Redeemer was to be the recipient of money paid in restitution for a wrong committed to a now-deceased family member, Numbers 5. The responsibility to uh, the Redeemer had the responsibility to buy out of slavery a relative who has sold himself into service because of economic hardship, Leviticus 25. And then finally, the Redeemer was to buy back family property that was sold due to economic hardship, Leviticus 35. Now, do you see the problem yet? I know I read through that kind of quick, and it may have been boring, but none of that applies to Ruth and Boaz and Naomi here. None of it. There is, there is no murder to avenge, no money to receive. There is no one in slavery and no land that has been sold. So how is Naomi and how is Ruth thinking Boaz is going to be a kinsman redeemer to them in chapter 2? Well, we have spoken of its technical sense, but there's also a broader sense in which God says he is the kinsman redeemer of his people. And God is shown to be the one who rescues his people from harm, the one who delivers them from enemies, and the one who saves them from death. And this is what Naomi has in mind here. This is what she wants Boaz to do, to act in a redeemer in this way, as one who simply reflects the faithfulness of God who provides for his people. And it's important that we notice this. It's important that we notice this because what it is saying here is that Boaz is acting as a redeemer not because the law tells him to. Not because God has said you have an obligation to fulfill, now fulfill it. Boaz is acting as a redeemer because he loves Naomi and Ruth. Boaz is acting as a redeemer because these are his family and he wishes them well. Not to be destitute, not to be poor, not to be left in bitterness, but he desires them to be provided for. In this way, Boaz's role as kinsman redeemer foreshadows Christ's ministry as our own kinsman redeemer. 
Christ identified with us in our needs in his incarnation, his taking on flesh and living as one enough, as one of us, going beyond the formal requirements of the law which demanded our sins be judged. He loved us, even when we didn't deserve it, even when we were unlovable, and he went to the cross for our salvation. And though in our own sinfulness we may be running as far away from God as we possibly can, we may care nothing for God or His ways, nevertheless, God pursues us in His love. Just like Naomi at the beginning of Ruth, God seeks those who are not seeking Him. He seeks after them and shows Himself to be a God of grace under whose wings sinners can find refuge. And this brings us to the end of the book where we see the providence that led to salvation, the providence that led to salvation. The entire book of Ruth is more than anything a story of God's gracious love that brings about redemption through His hand of providence. And the verses that that bring all that to the forefront are the ones that we read at the beginning, the verses at the very end of the book. Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. And then down at the end of verse 17, they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. In chapter 1, we saw that while she was married to Malon, Elimelech's son, Ruth did not conceive for 10 years. 10 years of marriage, no son, and now she has a honeymoon baby with Boaz. How did that happen? Well, the author is not unclear about it. The Lord gave her conception. It was God Himself who, for the most part of the story, has been content to kind of work behind the scenes and to be kind of, be kind of uh, moving things around and arranging circumstances that the right people came together at the right time that He might show His love and grace and redeem His people and take Naomi from bitterness to joy. And now He steps forward out from the wings, as it were, right on the stage and immediately and directly blesses this couple with a son. And what's the end result? David. David. Eventually, this marriage produces the future king of Israel, the king that all the other kings would be compared to, the king whom God will enter into special covenant with, the king whose line will eventually bring about the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the savior of the world, Jesus Christ himself. And throughout the book of Ruth, God is showing that he is faithful to his promises and is working all things together according to his plan to bring redemption through Christ. Think about, think about what God did to bring this about. Through his so- sovereign hand of providence, he used the sinful rebellion of Elimelech, the sinful marriage of Malon to Ruth, the unfortunate death of a father and his sons, the bitter gall of Naomi, the faithfulness of a Gentile woman, and the loving grace of Boaz, who willingly takes up the role of the Redeemer for his family, though the law does not prescribe it. God used all of these things to bring about his perfect plan in Christ. This is how God works in his providence. I've told before the story of Peter T. O'Brien. He is a um, a very uh, amazing man. He is a Christian who comes from Australia, and for a while he was uh, he was a missionary in India and a very good missionary in India. And after that, he left the field and he went and did studies in a PhD. And now he is a he is a pastor and he is a seminary professor and he writes commentaries and books. In fact, he writes uh, excellent. Basically, anything he writes, I buy. If that gives you any indication, I don't say that on a lot of people. He has probably written the finest 
commentary on the book of Philippians in the English language. And he came to faith, humanly speaking, he came to faith through the witness of his mother who led him to Christ when he was a teenager. And she came to faith, not because of anyone in her family, but because of a young woman who lived down the street who lived with an illness that caused her uh, unimaginable, unrelenting pain all the days of her life. This young lady woke up with pain, lived the day with pain, and went to bed at night and slept through with pain. And every single day, she would still go about her business as best as she could, largely homebound, never complaining, never getting angry with people, never allowing that pain to turn outward in sinful attitudes and characteristics to other people. And this lady, this single mom who lived down the street saw that and said, how can she do that? How can she do that? And so that single mom went and taught me this lady. And she said, I can do this because of Christ my Savior who strengthens me to do it. And so here is the, here is the amazing chain of events that this sickly, semi-literate woman led in her witness of Christ to the salvation of Mrs. O'Brien, which she in turn shared with her son, the salvation of young Peter, who would eventually become Dr. O'Brien, which led to the salvation of many souls in India, which led to the influence of young pastors like myself all over the world by life-changing and ministry-serving books. That's how God and His providence works. He takes the seemingly stray and wasted strands of life and He weaves them together into a tapestry of salvation to the glory of His name. This is why we can have confidence to seek refuge under the wings of God's grace. Because He is not only a God of grace and of love, but He is a God of power, as we heard this morning. We're working all things together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purposes. Too Far too often we live by what we see rather than what we believe. And when difficulty in life comes upon us, it can very easily strangle out our faith. But Ruth reminds us that there is a sovereign God who loves His people. And even when we can't see it, when we can't understand it, when things look bleak, He is there bringing about His good and perfect plan and purposes for His people in Christ. A plan that can bring us grace and love and joy even in the midst of difficult times. One man who believed this was William Cooper. He was a man who struggled with depression all of his life. He struggled because of the very difficulties that he had in life and yet... And yet, because of his faith in the providence of God and in his goodness to his people, he could write this hymn. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep and unfathomable minds of never-ending skill, his treasures, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take, the clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. For behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan God's work in vain. He is His own interpreter and He will make it plain. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, that in the midst of 
so much pain and difficulty and sin in our lives. Father, we know you are still at work. Father, you have not left us to ourselves, but Father, with love and patience and sovereign grace, you are working for the good of your people and the glory of your name. Father, for those of us who have trusted in Christ, Father, we delight in that. We take joy and comfort in knowing that while things may look bad now, Father, there is hope in you. Not just to remedy the pain now, but Father, to take that pain, that unimaginable pain, and bring something even unimaginably more glorious from it. Father, we pray for those that do not know you this morning, that Father, this view of you as a good and sovereign God, one who... In fact, was so loving towards his people, he sent Christ to die for them on the cross. Father, that view of your character would so draw them to you that they might have faith in your son, Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of their sins. Father, in all these things, we pray that you would give us hope in you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.